The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. This morning, as I mentioned, we are coming to the end of our series in the Psalms. And I look forward to preaching through the Psalms each year, in large part and in large portion because the Psalter, the collection of Psalms, has been the voice and the heartbeat of the church since its inception. It has given expression to the deep feelings and emotions uh, that rise within us. It, it gives us comfort when we find ourselves in uh, distress. These psalms have been memorized and held dear uh, by saints, our brothers and sisters, as they have stood before firing lines and been burned at the stake. And they quote the psalms uh, to remind them that God is their refuge and their strength, that there is a king uh, on his throne, that he is glorious and that he is worthy uh, of their praise and of their lives. And so when we come to the Psalms, we learn life within Christ. We learn how to celebrate. We, we have words to put to that expression. We learn how to lament, how to cry and to weep, how to enter into pain And to be present in that in our own lives and in the lives of those around us. And this morning we are coming to Psalm 110. And we are concluding with this psalm in large part because it is incredibly important to be reminded of who Christ is. This is a psalm of David. It was written by David. uh, But I would agree with with Charles Spurgeon and with Walter Chantry and other uh, scholars and pastors who say that this psalm really has absolutely nothing to do with David. It is written by David, but pointing to the true David, to Christ himself. And so this is what is known as a messianic psalm, a psalm pointing to the Christos, pointing to the Messiah, telling us who he is. And in this psalm, it is fascinating for us to consider Christ as the true king, but a different king. And some of you are going, well, we know about the king. We hear about him every Palm Sunday. We get that sermon uh, somehow repackaged. And I understand that sermon. I was on a staff of a very large church, a couple of big churches, and I was always given Palm Sunday. That was sort of the assistant pastor Sunday. Because the pastor was going to be busy for Easter. So I've preached on the kingliness of Christ. I feel like I've got it uh, and know it. But as I study this again, I'm refreshed and renewed And I'm convicted of how often I forget his kingliness. How often I revolt against his rule. How often I would rather forge my own kingdom and and find autonomy and self-rule. And I fail to see the beauty and the majesty and the gravity of being in the relationship and in the kingdom of the true king. And so Psalm 110 is a psalm that challenges our modern uh, comforts when it talks of corpses and blood and of battle. But it is a psalm that we need to hear today, especially as this King Jesus invites us to his table. He invites us to come and to dine today uh, as we do each first Sabbath of every month, that we come and we have his meal, the King's meal, 
where he's the host. And he invites us to come and to say with great costliness how he has loved us. And so the first thing that we're going to see uh, this morning is Jesus is not what we expected. The Jesus that we encounter in Scripture, the Jesus that's presented here in Psalm 110, is not the Jesus you expected. Uh, in, in those days uh, when uh, Jesus lived, that the Jewish people were expecting and were waiting for a political, yes, religious, but mainly a political uh, and a military leader. He would be from the lineage of David. He would come and establish himself. And so the idea of Christos or Messiah was that much more of politics. And so when these messiahs would rise up and the false messiahs would rise up, they would come and they would try to fight against Roman tyranny. And they would try to kick Rome out and there would be a little skirmish. And then eventually Rome would dominate again. And so even one of the disciples was a zealot. He was what would be considered today um, a a guerrilla warfare expert uh, of fighting the Romans, trying to reestablish Israeli rule, Jewish rule. They all thought that way. If you think that when Peter and John and, and Andrew and all were at their boats and Jesus walked by and said, follow me, they didn't go, oh, This is fantastic. You are the second person of the Trinity, full of glory and of honor, who is coexistent with the Father and with the Spirit from all times without confusion or corruption. And you have now come, as promised in the Old Testament, to be both God and man in perfect communion, in the hypostatic union. And there I see that you are the fulfillment of my theological expectations and worldview. Of course I'll drop my nets and follow you. No. They said, this is the king. This is the guy who is going to lead us against Rome and deliver us. And he kept teaching them for three years and they never really got it. Do you want to know why the the apostles and the disciples were so despondent when he died? Because they still didn't fully get it. He was supposed to deliver them from Rome and he failed. The people believed that in his day and age when Jesus did the miracles of the feeding of the 5,000. It says uh, that, I believe it's in John's account, uh, that as soon as he finished the feeding of the 5,000, it says that the people came to him and with force tried to make him king. Not Messiah, like we would think, but Christos Messiah as they would think. And so this is the Jesus that everyone was expecting. And we would go, yeah, but we don't expect him to be that. No, we, we expect him to be a butler. That we ring our bell of distress and he's supposed to come and serve our needs. Uh, we want him to be an ally to help us when things are difficult. Uh, we want him to be our savior. We want our fire insurance policy to go along with our wind and hail and our hurricane and flood insurance policies. We've got them all nicely tucked away and we'll bring them out in case of disaster. But other than that, we would prefer that Jesus not invade uh, our lives or affect it too much. And Jesus comes and says, I'm not the Messiah you expected. I'm totally other than 
And so Jesus is talking to the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And the Sadducees and the Pharisees were, uh, now you got to remove this from American politics, but they were like the Democrats and Republicans. They were part of the same thing, but they didn't like each other. And they sat across from one another on an aisle. And Jesus had just shut the mouths of the Sadducees. He just kind of shut them down. And so you can imagine uh, the Pharisees were like, this is awesome. <laughs> he just shut down the Sadducees. Now we're going to come in and we're going to ask him a question. And so in Matthew 22, also in Mark 12, but we're going to be looking at the Matthew passage. In Matthew 22, Jesus turns to the Sadducees, excuse me, to the Pharisees, and he asks them a question that silences them because he says, I'm not who you expect me to be. But the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, so they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And this is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? What do you think about Messiah? What do you think about Christos? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. They quoted Psalm 110. This is one of the many places Jesus uses Psalm 110. And he said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit, again, giving authenticity and authority to the words of David in the Old Testament, that it is the inspired word of God, that he in the spirit calls him Lord saying, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, Adonai, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Jesus basically said, I am going to obliterate your false view of me. I am going to properly teach you about who I am as the Messiah King. And I am Christos. I am Messiah, but not how you have designed me. I do not fit into any of your preconceived, preformed packages of what I am like. He goes back and he quotes Psalm 110. He said, the Lord said to my Lord, the Yahweh, the Jehovah said to my Adonai, So there's a conversation happening, and David's not in the conversation. David is writing as a scribe a conversation that is happening between the Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah, and David's Adonai, David's Lord, leader, king over him. And basically what Jesus says is, who's he talking about? And the guys were like, oh, well, I, um, hmm, well, uh," because they knew that they'd been caught. Because if they answered it properly, what they were going to have to admit was exactly where Jesus was leading them. This is God speaking to Christ. This is the Father speaking to the Son. And David looking up and saying this, this isn't about me. This Christos, this Messiah, he is no mere man. He is no mere king in an earthly sense of that. He is a God-man. He is a god king who comes and dwells and reigns and does all of these and he is a priest 
and he brings together things that aren't normally brought together within the human understanding. And so it is all of these beautiful things that he's bringing together. And what he's saying is you have to understand that he's no mere mortal, that he's no mere human He's simply not David's descendant. He comes from the lineage of David, but he's different from every other seed of David that had ever come. What is Jesus doing? He's being provocative. He's being combative. But he's being loving. He loves them so much and he loves us so much that he's not willing to allow us to remain in our bad theology. He's not willing to allow us to remain uh, in some Christo-political worldview uh, that confuses that Jesus is a Republican or that Jesus is a Democrat. He is neither. Jesus is king over all the earth, inclusive of America. And we have to understand that. He's saying, I blow apart all of your understandings of who I am. And he goes on and he goes after these false understandings and false assumptions. And he basically looks and he says, listen, I am not the Messiah you want, but I am the Messiah that you need. You may be saying, I want a Savior who does this for me. Jesus is saying, I'm not the Savior that you want, but I am the Savior that you need. I will do more for you, but I will devastate you. I will change you. You cannot come into relationship with me without making evasive action in your own life. Without taking some kind of change. Without doing something in your life. He's that powerful of a king. We have to change. We have to do something. You can be afraid of me. You can hate me. You can love me. But you cannot deny me. He was outrageous, as one writer put it, and he was in their face, and he is in ours today. Jesus is not what we expected. First point. I just wanted to be honest with you, as some of you are maybe tipping your toe back into church. Some of you are here for the very first time, and others of you have grown way too comfortable with this Christ. And for others, we want to be stimulated further in our relationship. But however we sit today, I want you to see that Christ is not to be trifled with. He is devastating and powerful and kingly and priestly and eternal and human and fully God, the true son of God, the true son of David who rules and reigns in power forever and ever. This is who he is. And so we see that he's not what we expected. So now what we see who he is, we're going to look at just a couple of the dynamics of his personhood. One is that he is a king, and the second is that he's a priest. And I'm not going to spend a great deal of time on either of these. But to talk briefly about his kingship and his kingliness. It says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power and holy garments. From the womb of the morning and the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The first thing that we see about this kingship of Christ is that his kingdom is established. That it has been established and is current. It says in verse 2 that you sit at my right hand. Uh, that, that idea of sitting at the right hand is saying that Christ, now the king, is seated in the place of power next to God the Father who is on the throne. And that Christ is participating actively in the kingdom work. 
that it's established there, it's participation in God's sovereign rule. It also means this, that him being seated means that his work of atonement, he is seated and he is resting from his work of atonement. It has been fully completed. He has done the work on the cross. It is completed by him once for all in a one-time death upon the cross. And therefore he is secured for all those to whom the Father gives to him salvation. And now he is seated. And that's important to understand. Many of you come from Roman Catholic backgrounds. And the Roman Catholic differentiation between this and the Protestant Presbyterian Reform view is this. As we come to the table today, Christ is not being re-sacrificed today. This is not a reenactment. This is not a re-sacrifice. That's not actually his body and that's not actually his blood. Those are representative bread and juice of the actual because he is currently seated at the right hand and he doesn't need to be sacrificed again. He said, I did it once for all. And the fact that when we have crosses uh, within a Protestant tradition, the crosses are empty. Why? Because Jesus isn't on the cross anymore and never will go to another cross. He is seated at the right hand of God the Father. That component of his ministry has been fully completed. And so it's saying, I've established my kingdom. It is now set. And this kingdom is eternal. That we get that in verse 4. That it will have no end. There is no earthly kingship that has had an eternality to it. Only Christ will have an eternal nature to it. It's interesting that Christ in his kingly reign reigns within the midst of his enemies. Verse 2. That's not normal. A king normally comes and establishes his kingdom, but doesn't reign within the midst of his enemies. So what is Jesus saying here? What is David saying here? He's basically teaching us the spiritual nature of the kingdom of heaven, that it infiltrates into the powerful kingdom of this world, and it is established and he reigns, as it were, indirectly. Because Jesus isn't here. I mean, he is by his spirit. But Jesus is seated at the right hand waiting for the Father to say, go. Go now directly in and finish off all of the work. Complete the work and establish now your kingdom in all of its fullness. So now he exerts his power indirectly. This is incredibly important for us as Christians and the church to understand. Christ exerts his powerful reign now in the world through his church. Through his people. That he now is reigning and ruling and establishing and furthering his kingdom's sake and doing the work of his kingdom through us, his church. We are the outposts, as it were, of his kingdom work. Martin Luther wrote this. We are to fight for Christ by suffering, by faith, by preaching God's word. That we're to enter in and to engage in this kingdom ministry by these very simple things. We participate freely is what it says in verse 3. You're not here because you have been bound and drug in, hopefully. Maybe some of you kids have, but, and some of you spouses have. But in general, the kingdom of God is a voluntary army. The citizenship is voluntary. And it's voluntary in this way. When we see our true king and what he has done on our behalf, and we come into a relationship with him through grace by faith in the completed work of Jesus Christ, where we are now justified, adopted, sanctified by his blood, all of a sudden our reasonable response is what? I'm all in. Take my life and let it be 
Consecrated Lord to thee, the great hymn of the faith. We go, I volunteer, I'm all in, and I freely give myself to you, Lord. Use me as you would. Has anybody ever prayed that prayer? Lord, use me however you would see fit. You can raise your hands. That's a dangerous prayer, isn't it? And a lot of people didn't raise their hands because we don't want to let God do that. But the psalmist says, his kingdom is filled with people who freely offer themselves to the king to say this, wherever you want to send me, however you want to use me, if my name will be known or my name is never known, if I have wealth or if I have poverty, whatever you want me to do, Lord, I am willing to do it. I'm willing to go to the ends of the earth in your name and serve you in a foreign country. I am willing to stay in my marriage and love my spouse and not leave. I am willing to love my children. I am willing to do whatever you would have me do to run my business for your glory, to use my wealth for your glory, to use my poverty for your glory, to live in my singleness for your glory, to raise my children for your glory. I'm willing. I'm all in. I volunteer myself freely to you, Lord. That's the kingdom work of how God, Christ, is working his kingdom here in the world to, for us to participate freely. We should never have to beg, and the church doesn't beg for people. We just simply pray and say, God, raise up the folks to do it, and if they don't do it, then we're not going to do it. That's your work. You raise up the people to do it. That's how we should approach things, that we participate, we persuade, we talk to people about the good news of the kingdom, and we pray Because we recognize that that's where our power is. Listen to this quote by Walter Chantry. He said, The world is in desperate need of a spiritual church using spiritual weapons to fight a spiritual war under the spiritual reign of Christ. Our world is in desperate need for more technology, for a watered-down gospel, for less commitment, and for no one confronting anybody else with anything. That's the movement of the American church. Chantry was right. We're in desperate need of a spiritual church using spiritual weapons to fight a spiritual war under the spiritual reign of Christ. Christ will use your life. He will use your your holiness, your righteousness, the manner in which you live your life, the manner in which you love one another, the manner in which you present the gospel, just the gospel. That you preach it, that you teach it, that you live it and you know it and you share it in season and out. That's the kingdom. That's our king. And he uses the kingdom this way. But he's no, second thing that we want to see, he's no ordinary king. Or maybe the third thing. Uh, He's no ordinary king. He's a priestly king. In the kingship of Jesus, he brings together two different things. He brings together his kingship and his priestliness. And that's what we see there in verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek is mentioned in Genesis 14. He's mentioned here in Psalm 110. And then he's mentioned all throughout Hebrews. Many people believe that Hebrews was written basically to explain Psalm 110. It was the full explanation of the priestly office of Jesus Christ. And so in Genesis 14, it speaks of Abram who confronts this man. And it says in Melchizedek, verse 14, or 18 of chapter 14, says Melchizedek, the king of Salem, he was a king, brought out bread and wine, and he was a priest of God most high. 
And he blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So Melchizedek is this mysterious figure who comes, but he was a king and a priest. And Jesus is saying, I am a priest along his lines, not the Levitical lines and not the Aaronic lines. And the significance of this is the fact that the Lord has sworn by this, king, by this priesthood. The Lord has sworn by it. It says that the Lord, verse 4, the Lord has sworn and he will not change his mind. That means it is established that the priestly work of Jesus, that is Jesus as access to God. King, we understand that he's authority and he rules, but Jesus as priest is access to God. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. That's priestly language. That's Jesus saying, do you want to enter into the Holy of Holies? You have to come through me. Do you want to have a relationship with my Father? You have to come through me. Do you want to enter back into Eden? You have to come through my body, which was bloodied and pierced by the flaming sword of the angel so that you can enter back into Eden. But you have to come through me. I'm the high priest and I have been established and sworn to by God that there's no other priest who can help you out. Only my priestliness uh, can get you there. He becomes the anchor for our soul, firm and secure, Hebrews 5. This anchor is the eternal security of the believer. Some of you may come from theological backgrounds that tell you that you can lose your salvation. Friends, you will not find that in the Scripture. Part of the great assurance that we have by the priesthood of Christ is the assurance that when we are saved, you are always saved, never to be lost. Christ said, no one can take you out of my hand. What can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Can death, nor life, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things to come? Nothing, height, nor death, anything. It is this, this sense, as it were, James Montgomery Boyce wrote these words. Since he has made a perfect atonement for their sin, And since God has sworn to accept Jesus' work, the believer can be as certain that he or she will be in heaven as that Jesus himself will be there. Did you pick up on that? You can be as assured and certain that you will be in heaven as you are that Jesus is in heaven. Almost every believer would raise their hands and go, I am confident that Jesus is in heaven. And then if I asked the question again and said, are you confident that you're going to be in heaven? Maybe. Yesterday I was. Today it was a bad day. I'm not sure about tomorrow. I'm feeling already bad about Monday. And there's not an assurance. But there's this sense now because of the work of Jesus as the priest in Melchizedek's line that he is a priest forever. Hebrews chapter 7. Uh, that Jesus uh, ha- is our eternal high priest, that it says in chapter 7 that he holds of Hebrews, that he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever, that his priesthood is superior to all other priesthoods, that he established a better covenant, that it says that he's done this and he's established it through better blood, that we have access into the Holy of Holies. You have access through Christ, this King, and that he made real atonement on our behalf. That Jesus' work of atonement has sealed it for us. And friends, let me take just a moment and pause there. In order for Christ to be your King, you have to accept him as your priest. And as your priest, accept him as your sacrifice. That you don't offer yourself 
in order to appease God, but Christ offered himself on your behalf. That's the beauty of the gospel message. It's saying, by grace you have been saved through faith and not by works, so that no man should ever boast. But Christ has made this atonement for us. And so Jesus isn't what we were expecting. He is an incredible king who reigns, but he is also the lamb who was sacrificed on our behalf. And he continually stands now with the Father, giving us access to him. How many of you pray during the week, just once in a while? You don't want to know why your prayers are answered? It's because of the atoning work of Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross that the Father even hears you. He is our high priest, saying you have access to the Father through me, through your prayers in that way. This Sunday, and I think about that this Saturday, I get to stand again before my son and my future daughter-in-law. And I looked at her the other day and I was talking to her and I was holding her hand. And I said, it's incredible to touch an answered prayer. That for 23 years, we've faithfully prayed that God would provide a godly spouse for our son, Will. And her name's Ashton Wise. Why did God listen and answer? Because of the work of Jesus Christ. Because of His intercession on our behalf. Because He is our high priest. I'd love to leave it there. I probably should. Except there's a few more verses. And here's what those few more verses say. Yes, He is King. And we want you. And He wants you to bow the knee and come into His kingdom. And He is a beautiful priest who has given you His very life. But he is also a conquering warrior king. And he will return one day. And the Lord is at your right hand and he will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. Friends, you'll face this king, this priest king one day. And you will either face him and be seated with him at his with him next to the father above all rule and authority with every blessing in the spiritual places in Christ you will either be seated with him or you will be his footstool and that is language that exalts our common modern sensibilities but Christ is a conquering king and at the end of the day when he returns all of his enemies will bow the knee and every single one of them will confess that he is lord but not in repentance but in defiance and in destruction because all of a sudden they realized that he is who he says that he is and so my encouragement to you today is recognize who he is today while there still is breath in your lungs. Before he returns and recompenses all things. And some of you are going, ah, hellfire and brimstone, here it comes trying to scare me into heaven. If that's what it takes, then yes. Because if I have to tell you and say to you, you don't want to face an angry God. And you don't want to give account for your life of how you dismissed him and his claims all of your life. I promise you, I will do my best to scare you into heaven and then tell you about the love of Christ. To tell you of the beauty that you'll fall in love with this one that you once feared. But my hope today is this, that you're invited to come to a table of a king who invites all of his children to come on bended knee to recognize him And maybe today is your first time ever to recognize him as king and then praise the Lord for that. 
And maybe it's a renewal of your heart. And praise God for that. But let's come now to his table, to the table of a king. Let's pray.